Book of Daniel and chapter 2. Now it is a very remarkable thing that the 400 years that we're going to deal with in these evenings are in the Bible. Uh, Daniel prophesied, predicted exactly what would happen during those years, hundreds of years before it happened. So remarkable were Daniel's predictions, so detailed were they, especially later on in his vision of the he-goat, um, that, um, that many liberal scholars a hundred years ago were dogmatic, quite convinced and dogmatically stated that these visions of Daniel were undoubtedly um, uh, uh, post-Christian, otherwise post-Christ. They must have been added in at the time of Christ, put into the book of Daniel, because they, they could not understand how so detailed visions uh, could be given hundreds of years before the thing happened. Now, we won't be dealing exactly with that this evening. We're going to deal with the Gentile background uh, of the New Testament as we find it uh, forming during these 400 years. But we've got it in Daniel chapter 2. <clears throat> now, we shall read from verse 31. Thou, O king, sawest, and behold, a great image. This image, which was mighty, and whose brightness was excellent, stood before thee, and the aspect thereof was terrible. As for this image, its head was of fine gold, its breast and its arms of silver, its belly and its thighs of brass, its legs of iron, its feet part of iron and part of clay. Thou sawest till that a stone was cut out without hands, which smote the image upon its feet that were of iron and clay, and break them in pieces. Then was the iron, the clay, the brass, the silver, and the gold broken in pieces together, and became like the chaff of the summer threshing floors. And the wind carried them away, so that no place was found for them. And the stone that smote the image became a great mountain, and filled the whole earth. That word mountain, if you look in your modern version, or in the margin, you will see became a great Rock. Verse 36. This is the dream, and we will tell the interpretation thereof before the king. Thou, O king, art king of kings, unto whom the God of heaven hath given the kingdom, the power, and the strength, and the glory. And wheresoever the children of men dwell, the beasts of the field, and the buds of the heavens, hath he given into thy hand, and hath made thee to rule over them all. Thou art the head of the gold, that is Babylon. And after thee shall arise another kingdom inferior to thee, and another third kingdom of brass, which shall bear rule over all the earth, that is Persia and Greece. And the fourth kingdom shall be strong as iron, for as much as iron breaketh in pieces and subdueth all things, and as iron that crusheth all these shall it break in pieces and crush. And whereas thou sawest the feet and toes, part of potter's clay and part of iron, it shall be a divided kingdom, but there shall be in it of the strength of the iron, for as much as thou sawest the iron mixed with miry clay. And as the toes of the feet were part of iron and part of clay, 
so the kingdoms will be partly strong and partly brittle. And whereas thou sawest the iron mixed with miry clay, they shall mingle themselves with the seed of men, but they shall not cleave one to another, even as iron doth not mingle with clay. And in the days of those kings shall the God of heaven set up a kingdom which shall never be destroyed, nor shall the sovereignty thereof be left to another people. But it shall break in pieces and consume all these kingdoms, and it shall stand forever. For as much as thou sawest that a stone was cut out of the mountain without hands, and that it break in pieces the iron, the brass, the clay, the silver, and the gold, the great God has made known to the king what will come to pass hereafter. The dream is certain, and the interpretation thereof sure. Then the king Nebuchadnezzar fell upon his face and worshipped Daniel, and commanded that they should offer an oblation of sweet odours unto him. The king answered unto Daniel and said, Of a truth, your God is the God of gods, and the Lord of kings, and a revealer of secrets, seeing thou hast been able to reveal this secret. Then the king made Daniel great, and gave him many great gifts, and made him to rule over the whole province of Babylon, and to be chief governor over all the wise men of Babylon. And Daniel requested of the king, and he appointed Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego over the affairs of the province of Babylon. But Daniel was in the gate of the king. Now the period between the end of the Old Testament canon, that is Malachi, and the beginning of the New Testament has been called again and again the 400 silent years. You will find it, um, you will find that phrase again and again when we come to what we call the inter-testament period, the time between the two testaments. And um, it is a rather descriptive title, the 400 <coughs> silent years. They may indeed have been silent insofar as there was no great prophetic voice. When Malachi um, finished, fulfilled his ministry, um, there was no great prophetic voice until John the Baptist's voice was heard crying in the desert, make straight the way of the Lord. And we can also say that we can call it the 400 silent years, not only because there was no prophetic voice in those years, but because there was no divinely inspired scripture given. From the book of Malachi afterward, after that time, we have got a number of what we call apocryphal books. But these books have always been recognized, both by the Jewish church, the rabbis, and later on by the early fathers of the church, and then of course by the reformers, being recognized again and again as not being of the same standard as what we call the Old Testament. 
We shall deal with that, I trust, in one of these evenings, um, this whole matter of what we call apocryphal literature. So you can, in fact, call these years the 400 silent years if you're looking for a prophetic voice uh, during that time or for some divinely inspired scripture. <coughs> but if you are thinking of divine activity, you cannot possibly call these 400 years silent. For in fact, this period these four centuries were anything but silent. Tremendous and far-reaching changes took place in every sphere of human life. It doesn't matter where you looked in the ancient world. In these four centuries, tremendous changes um, took place. Great world empires disappeared and new ones appeared. The Jewish people were scattered throughout the inhabited earth. Some even reached China and settled in China. And although they died out, there is still shown today the synagogue of the Chinese Jews. So many people have always wanted to see a Chinese Jew. But in fact, there were Chinese Jews. Uh, they reached as far afield as China, right over on the um, eastern seaboard of uh, China. This was the period when the Jews were dispersed throughout the inhabited earth. And wherever they went, they began to gather together as the people of God. And they began to study the word, the scriptures, the Old Testament scriptures. They began to pray and they began to worship. And they became, quite unconsciously, in the midst of a Gentile world, the testimony to the one true living yet invisible God. And when you think, of course, today, we, we don't find that very thrilling. But in those days when there was pantheism on every <coughs> side and idolatry was the order of the day, it was the most remarkable thing to find in the midst of any given community a group of people who were essentially different, in whose homes no idols were found who did not believe in propitiating somehow or other evil spirits, who didn't somehow or other feel that they were bound up with the fertility rites and cults to keep the whole wheel of nature going. Here were an essentially different people. They, they worshipped the one almighty, infinite, yet invisible God. And their life was marked generally speaking, by a morality which was quite remarkable and was all the more um, remarkable when it was set against the background of Gentile immorality. Now, this all happened in these 400 years. The Word of God, the very revelation of the living God himself, was for the first time, to the horror of some of the more conservative amongst the people of God, translated into a heathen tongue. 
it was translated from Hebrew, the very language of God, into that vulgar language, Greek. And uh, that meant that for the first time in centuries, the oracles of God were open to millions of people who never before knew anything about them. Not only were there scattered all over the inhabited earth these communities of, um, uh, of, of law-abiding and deeply religious people who worshipped the living God, as they called him, Jehovah the living God, but also now the book in which they said was given to them the revelation of this living God was now in a language that uh, the Gentiles could understand. Palestine itself was prepared. Great changes took place in the actual country, the promised land, as in fact also all the surrounding nations were prepared. Culturally, they were prepared for the coming of the Messiah. Politically, they were prepared for the coming Messiah. Religiously, they were prepared for the coming Messiah. Now, my dear, dear children of God, do you realize that God is the God of history? And do you, in fact, realize that God is not, as some people think, uh, like Jonah, that he is only concerned with a very, in a, within very narrow and restricted limits. God is working his purpose out. And in these 400 years, we find that God is the God of history, far away from his own covenant and chosen people. He is preparing vast empires. He is preparing the minds almost of men of philosophers, of Greek philosophers, of Roman thinkers and writers, all of whom are preparing a Gentile world for the coming Messiah. He's putting into the hearts and minds of men unbelievable ideas that even today we consider engineering feats in order that an administration or a road system could spread over thousands upon thousands of miles just so that the gospel could reach as quickly as possible to the ends of that empire and establish the church of God. Now all this we find in these four hundred years. We find within these four hundred years that the canon of the Old Testament was not only concluded but finally recognized as the uh, divinely inspired scriptures of God. The law, the prophets, and the writings. Now then, all that happened in these four centuries. And I believe it has a great lesson for us because we also are at the end of another age. And sometimes for us it might seem as if with the close of the New Testament canon that somehow or other these are the silent centuries until the last great phase before the coming again of the Lord Jesus when the prophetic gift will again break forth. I'm not thinking of it as it is known 
uh, today in some circles, but in a much more unique way even than that. That at the end, before the coming of the Lord, there will be a, a new divine outburst, a new divine, as it were, expression, radiation of um, the word uh, of God. Of course, uh, uh, it is not extra to what we have in Scripture. That I must just make clear. We feel, however, that in this intervening period, we are in what we could call the silent centuries. But, my dear friends, things are happening and happening fast. God is moving in our day. And, you know, there is a sense in which empires are disappearing. New empires are coming up. One great ideology after another rears its ugly head. And stage after stage, we see the progress of a tremendous stream that is flowing on to the end of this age. You and I are in that. We are seeing even now the preparing of the tables, as it were, the preparing of the stage for the coming of Antichrist, the preparing of the stage for the coming of the Lord Jesus. We see these great things that are happening everywhere, and we see the moves toward world government and uh, unity. We see these things happening within um, Christendom, which are going to result in a united uh, but counterfeit church. All these things are, in fact, happening before our eyes. Now, the thing is this. If you had been living in the period just previous to the coming of the Lord Jesus, most of you would not, and I, myself, most of us, would not have recognized his coming. Oh yes, just get me clear. We would have all said, we're looking for the Messiah. We are the covenant people of God. We're looking for the Messiah. But I'm sure if we can learn the lesson, which we, I trust we will, from these four centuries, that at the end, in spite of the fact that the living oracles of God was there, in spite of the fact that the Spirit of God was present, in spite of the fact that all these amazing predictions had been made and were being fulfilled before their very eyes, only a tiny handful were aware that the Messiah was just about to appear. And that tiny handful were quite, on the whole, quite ordinary people. Now that has a very big lesson for you and me, because you see, dear child of God, when you read a book, it seems thrilling. When you read the Bible story, you think, my goodness me, how blind they all were. Why, it's as clear as crystal. It, it, it absolutely stares at you. How could they possibly have missed it? But when you're in it, familiarity breeds contempt. And somehow when you're in it, it doesn't seem to be miraculous. And it doesn't really seem as if things are happening. If you could step out of history tonight and just see what's happened in the last 60 years, just the years of this century, you would, I am sure, be overwhelmed. If you could just stand back and look at it and see a pattern emerging, that every time there has been a period of world strain and economic and political crisis, some tremendous thing has burst out of it. 
It is not going too far to say that in the First World War, it seems as if evil engineered that terrible catastrophe, whilst unbeknown to those world powers locked in mortal combat, communism reared its head, which was to become the greatest threat in the 20th century. And if, and this is fact, historically, if the British and the Germans, if the Austro-Hungarian Empire and the Kaiser and Britain had not been locked in battle, communism would have been destroyed at its birth. They would have united to help the Tsar and destroy them, rightly or wrongly. But you see, they were locked in battle. 1917, they had lost millions of men on either side. And when the call came from Russia to help, they sent a little token force of British and the Germans sent a little token force of Germans. They couldn't do anything. The thing happened. It was born in the midst of great turmoil. Who knew it? Who understood it at the time? Very, very few people. Now people look back and they're wise to the event. Or again, in 1931, there was a great economic crisis that hit this country and hit America. And we call it the Great Depression. And everywhere there was fear. And what happened? In the middle of that great strain and tension which spread over the whole of the Western world, a little painter called Adolf Hitler appeared. And because his country was in such desperate plights and in such desperate need, he seemed to be the answer to the people and he broke pact after pact and agreement after agreement and no one felt they could do anything about it until once again the thing reared its ugly head. So you see, these are things that happen. Now, in those four centuries, it is not uh, exaggerating to say that it was this kind of thing that happened. One great empire gave way to another, and that great empire gave way to another, and each time something was being prepared for the coming of the Christ. And so we have very great lessons and very solemn lessons to learn from <coughs> these centuries. Now, I do hope that as we start to deal with the facts, uh, we won't find it too uh, boring. As I said, I want to deal this evening with the Gentile background of this uh, period. There are, during this period, three successive world empires, all of which have left their mark, and all of which were predicted and foretold by Daniel in his uh, book. Uh, those three successive world empires, of which the scripture says we are still in the continuation of the last one, are first Persia, followed by Greece, and followed by Rome. Now, let's just um, for a moment think about Persia. Persia, in fact, um, was a remarkable empire as compared with the previous, uh, the Babylonian, of which Daniel spoke as the first. Uh, its 
system of government was enlightened and humane compared with the Assyrians and compared with the Babylonians. They had allowed the return of all the deported captive peoples to their own lands, and they had permitted the reconstruction of their life economically and spiritually. Now this was in fact a very humane and enlightened attitude. On top of that, they not only permitted them to go back and reconstruct their life and their country again, but they gave them a limited form of home rule, which was as, as enlightened as uh, it's possible uh, to be. The fact that the Persians were, for the most part, Zoroastrians, that is, worshipping one invisible God spirit, that's Zoroastrianism, the symbol of which is fire, attended by six angels, archangels. This was their idea, um, the invisible God, whose symbol, whose, whose man, the manifestation of whom was fire. Now this had very real, they felt very real kinship with the Jews. Here were another people who believed in the infinite and invisible God who was spirit and who talked of the Shekinah glory, a great bursting out, as it were, of fire and of light. So the Persians felt, on the whole, a very real kinship with the Jew, more so than any of the other nations or tribes around them, and, on the whole, um, treated the Jew very fairly and well. So we can say that um, the uh, Persian uh, kings, the Persian emperors, on the whole, um, helped forward the reconstruction and the rebuilding of the land. Um, you've got that, of course, you've got the first of them mentioned in Isaiah, my servant Cyrus, uh, says the Lord. He was the founder, the beginning, as it were, of the great Persian Empire. And he was the one who in a particularly was a friend of the Jewish uh, people. He helped them forward in their going back to the land under Zerubbabel, and he helped them in the reconstruction of the temple and of the country. Gradually, however, as time went on, the Persian um, empire was weakened by internal division and rebellion until finally it was swept away by a most remarkable man called Alexander the Great in 331 uh, BC. Um, thus God used Persia very greatly for the fulfillment of his purpose in the rebuilding of the uh, temple and the city of God, Jerusalem, the reinstitution of the priesthood and the sacrifice, uh, 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 sacrificial system and worship, the repopulation of the land, and the study of the scriptures. 
Now, what can we say was the real contribution of the Persian Empire to the coming of the Messiah? Well, now, listen carefully. It was this. If there had been no Persian Empire, there would have been no return to the land. If the Babylonian system had continued with their policy and attitude, they would never have permitted a return of deported peoples. Their whole idea was to mix up all the tribes and the peoples of their whole empire until at last they became one great uh, mongrel population that owed loyalty to no one but Babylon. The Persians had an altogether different attitude. Therefore, God brought them to power and used them so that the city of God could be rebuilt and the house of God could be rebuilt. Because before then, it had been said by some of the prophets that the Lord would come to his temple. And there had to be a Bethlehem. Otherwise, the prophet Micah's prophecy could not be fulfilled. Thou Bethlehem Ephrata. Um, that art small amongst the thousands of Judah. Out of thee shall come forth him who shall be a ruler in amongst my people Israel, whose goings are from of old, from everlasting. It couldn't be fulfilled. Nor could the prophet Isaiah's prophecy, Thou Galilee of the nations, out of thee, a great light coming out of Galilee. How is it possible? If un unless the people went back to the depopulated land of Palestine and rebuilt and reconstructed their life so that these great prophecies of the coming Messiah could, in fact, be fulfilled. All this has point. There would have been no priesthood if the people hadn't gone back under the Persian government. For do you realize that the Persian government not only um, paid very largely for the reconstruction of the temple, uh, uh, but also actually was behind the reinstitution of the priesthood and the worship of that temple. Now, that is the contribution of Persia. In 334 BC, another great world power arose. And I think we all know a little more about that great world power. It was Greece. Greece already had a culture and a civilization famed for its brilliance long before this date. But it was Alexander the Great, one of the most remarkable men in ancient history, in fact in world history, I've often said I'd like to, to meet him, whatever we shall, but um, I'd love to meet Alexander the Great. He was undoubtedly one of the most extraordinary and remarkable men that ever lived. This man led Greece to its greatest power in an empire which extended literally from Greece right the way to what we now call West Pakistan one of the biggest empires the world has ever known. It all began with his father, Philip of Macedon, uh, who united three 
um, parts of Greece together, what was called Greece, what was called Thrace, and what was called Macedonia. He united these three together, and when he had unified them under his own uh, leadership, he then started an offensive against the Persians who were holding many of the Greek uh, cities. Um, they, uh, he, he started an offensive to reclaim those cities and states from Persian domination. Unfortunately, he was assassinated in 336 and was succeeded by his son, Alexander, at 20 years of age. Alexander came to the head of a united Greece when he was only 20 years of age and showed himself to be a military genius <coughs> as well as an administrator of the very first order. He led the armies across. We can't go into it all anyway. I'm not qualified to be able to tell you it all, filling a story as it is. He took them right across into Asia, into Turkey, and then started the actual um, triumphant uh, progress right across Asia to India. In 331, he routed the um, Persian army, and the Persian Empire fell into his hands. Darius III was murdered when he was fleeing from him, and at 25 years of age, Alexander the Great was the leader of the one of the greatest empires in world history. He died of fever at Babylon in 323 uh, BC at the age of 31. Surely a most remarkable man. All, everything he accomplished was in his youth. But the most remarkable thing of all was this. He may have been a very young man, and um, it may be, as we look at it now, that his the unity of his empire, which stretched, as I've said, from Greece to India, did not outlive him for very long. But we have to say this. He imposed upon the whole ancient world in his short life a cultural unity that was to last for 1,000 years. Now think about it. That young man imposed, God was behind it, a cultural unity <laughs> upon the whole of this vast empire that was going to last for over a thousand years. From then on, Hellenism, as we call it, permeated every single part of the old empire. Greek became the common and universal language spoken by everyone as a commercial language, as the, the, the language of administration, as the general language for all, rather like in Africa Hausa is the trade language. Greek became the language everywhere, as later on Latin was to become in the Middle Ages in Europe and after that French. So Greek became the universal and common language of all the various parts of the Greek Empire. Uh, it was not only that, but um, the Semitic languages, Chaldee and Hebrew, 
Egyptian and many others just simply fell into disuse as people came to use Greek more and more not only in business and in study but in their homes. Greek thought, Greek customs, Greek traditions were everywhere adopted. Upper class society became Hellenized. In fact, if you weren't uh, Greek in your ways and Greek in your ideas, you were not, you were not sort of um, you. Uh, you were rather sort of, you were non-you. Uh, you just weren't with it. Uh, everyone who was anything was Greek in their ideas uh, and Greek in uh, their thought in every single way. And we can also, I think, say that um, great changes came in the fields of art, which of course are with us to this day, um, of art and of uh, philosophy and science and religion. Greek thought, Greek tradition, Greek custom left an indelible imprint on the ancient world which has been carried right down to till this day. Great cities arose. Great cities arose rather like Alexandria. Alexandria took its name from Alexander the Great. And um, these great cities arose around the Mediterranean that were great centers of Greek learning and Greek culture, magnificent in their proportions and in their architecture, which even today, in their ruins, thrill people again and again as they look at them. Uh, Alexandria's seaport and harbour became the talk of the whole inhabited world with its great lighthouse that could be seen for miles, at least so uh, we are told. Uh, it became one of the greatest intellectual centres of the world. Uh, it had public libraries, public zoos, public museums, public gardens, all of which added to its fame. This was the kind of thing in the great flowering of um, the Greek uh, period that captured the imagination of the whole world. It was here in Alexandria that Greek-speaking Jews, to the horror of Aramaic-speaking Jews, found their natural center. And from then on, Hellenists were opposed to Hebrews. So Paul says, I'm a Hebrew of the Hebrew. Stephen was a Hellenist. A a a a a um, Apollos was uh, an Alexandrian Hellenist of all peoples. So you can imagine that in Corinth, some of the Christians found it very difficult indeed. Oh, that man from Alexandria. You see, you know, these things go deep. These are the things that lie behind so much in the New uh, Testament. It was from Alexandria that I think the one uh, greatest single factor in the preparation for the coming of the Messiah uh, took place. And that was what I have already mentioned, the translation of the Old Testament uh, scriptures into Greek. Now, believe me, no one in 
um, Judea would have done that. Even if they'd like to have done it, they would have probably been stifled. But in Alexandria, because it had a very go-ahead policy, its attitude was Greek, it was liberal, generous, broad-minded, go-ahead. Um, they conceived this tremendous idea of taking the oracles of God and putting them into the language of the ordinary people. I can hear some of the dear old people have gone sort of saying, why, why, what, what's it got to do with them? I mean, keep it in Hebrew for us. We all speak Hebrew. At least we can all send our sons to be taught Hebrew. But I mean, fancy just throwing pearls before swine. I mean, uh, just sort of putting it into, into the vulgar language of the common people. And these Gentiles, it was a tremendous break with tradition. And into the language of the common people, the Old Testament scriptures went. And that single thing, that single work, has had more effect on the course of Christian history than anything else. For it was to the New Testament church. They, had, they didn't read Hebrew. The New Testament church looked at the Old Testament in its Greek translation. And therefore all kinds of things began to make sense. The word church, ecclesia. Unfortunately we've lost the continuation because in the Old Testament we read the congregation of the people. But in the Greek it says the ecclesia of the people. And then when they come to the New Testament, they when the Lord said, upon this rock I will build my ecclesia. And so they saw a wonderful continuation from the Old Covenant to the New Covenant. It was that kind of thing that had such tremendous effect <laughs> upon um, the people. Now, you see, um, this matter of Gentile background is not just history. Some people might think that it hasn't got much for them. For me, and I think for others, if you go away and think, it's thrilling. For it shows God is behind even Gentile and godless history, if you like. Hidden, veiled, there he is working his purpose out. And he's got a great objective. If you and I had been there, we would have wondered perhaps what quite what this objective was. We would have thought, well, it's rather an amazing thing, these scriptures in the Greek tongue. We might have thought it's rather remarkable, all these Jews everywhere, all speaking Greek and being able to converse with their, with their neighbors about the things of God in a language that the people can understand. And now they've got the scriptures also in this language. It was remarkable. There were great Greek philosophers, and I wish we could spend time just there, but I'm afraid I'm not so well versed in them. Uh, to be able to really talk for long about them. But there were the great Greek thinkers, Plato, Aristotle, Epicurus, Zeno, and these others, all of whom prepared the ancient world in their own way for the coming of Christ. There were new ideas abroad. New, new philosophies, new, new explanations for the universe, new reaching out after some answer to human life. All somehow or other were dissatisfied with what they'd got and longed for an answer to human life. And in some way they prepared the people, the Gentile world I mean, for the coming of the desire of all nations. They could say so much more. Alongside all that was good and commendable, uh, Hellenistic society developed a corruption 
and an immorality and a pursuit of pleasure which has become proverbial. It was during this period, toward the end of this period, in the second century roughly, before Christ, that one of the darkest and most sinister characters predicted in Scripture appeared. Now, I intend, by God's grace, to, to take the career of this man separately because I feel it's so very important for us all to an understanding of what the Scripture teaches about Antichrist. But it was one of Jury's darkest hours up to that point. In fact, at one point, during those dark years, seven years, at one point it seemed as if Palestinian Jury was on the brink of extermination. That man was called Antiochus Epiphanes. He took the very title of God, Epiphanes, outshining. He meant, yeah, he was the outshining of deity. Uh, his whole object, which we shall talk about another evening, was to somehow Hellenize the temple. He felt that until Jewry was really Hellenized, they couldn't do much about it. Here in the midst of, of, of their society were a people who ruggedly and dogmatically, tenaciously hung to their scriptures and hung to their way of life. They wouldn't let go. And so he evolved this idea of Hellenizing the temple. He wanted to put in a few idols um, uh, in the courts, uh, and in the, uh, within the temple itself. Uh, and of course, to his annoyance, he found the priesthood uh, barred his entry. So began those terrible days when finally he got in and he slew a pig, scattered its blood upon the altar, which of course was called in scripture the abomination of desolation upon the altar. That was what Daniel prophesied. When you see the abomination of desolation upon the altar, the, the, to, the, to the Jew, to the child of God, the pig was the most fearful creature, the most unclean of all the species. And I mean, for them to just take a creature that they didn't even like to touch or uh, he certainly never eat, to take that creature and put its blood and dung upon the altar and take it into the Holy of Holies and scatter it upon the mercy seat was something that simply went to the heart of every God-fearing Jew. And uh, this man set himself up, more or less, as God and commanded the allegiance of all. Even worse was the fact that the high priest, he, he got hold of the high priest, got him so compromised that finally he became his mouthpiece and in fact did uh, um, help forward the policies of Antiochus. Now that's all a period that we shall have to just talk about uh, a bit later because it's all predicted in Daniel in detail and it all came to pass and he has become, Antiochus Epiphanes, has become the archetype of the Antichrist. In other words, from that point onward, this man has become the symbol of the coming Antichrist. So that from him we can learn the Antichrist's character and methods and policy. All very interesting. Well, we must leave that. What was Greece's contribution to the coming uh, of Christ? What was it? Well, it was undoubtedly 
in the cultural unity it established over such a large area. It was not only that from Greece itself to Pakistan, a unity was established in culture so that Greek ideas, Greek ways, Greek designs were accepted as the sort of modern with it thing uh, to do. Um, but far further afield west, Greek ideas and customs traveled uh, far beyond the actual confines of their own um, empire. Now, this was of tremendous importance. You see, before, if before it had been left, so that the Lord Jesus had appeared in the Babylonian period, or, or, there about, or in the Persian period, you would have had an empire which, whilst it was united in one sense, was wholly disunited in another. Everyone was speaking their own tribal or national or local language or dialect. Everyone was following, more or less, their own local culture or national culture. They were completely divided. In that sense, the Greeks weren't very interested in the Jews. And uh, the Persians, were, the Medes weren't particularly interested in the Jews. The Egyptians weren't particularly interested in the Jews. But now, there was a common culture. And everyone felt they belonged to an entity. They were, of course, Egyptians or Arabians, or they were Jews, or they were uh, Greeks, actual Greeks, Macedonians, or they were um, uh, Romans or Italians, or, but they somehow had ever felt some kind of link they understood each other in a way they could never understood each other before. They were, their minds were meeting. Their minds were meeting. Because upon this vast area, a kind of cultural unity had been imposed and established. This was one of the great and vital contributions of the Greek <coughs> Empire. Then, too, I think we have to say that another great um, contribution of the Greek Empire was the liberalizing attitude and tendency of Greek thought and culture. Now, this is very, very important. Before then, again, it harks back to the first point I've made of cultural unity. Before then, people were more or less bound by their own distinctive culture and their own distinctive thought. But after this, they not only had a cultural unity, but Greek thought and culture was liberalizing. It had a gloriously open aspect. It was new. You know, it was said of the Athenians in the book of Acts that they always wanted to hear something new. Now that is typically Greek. It is, as it were, in one sentence, the whole of Greek uh, thought and, and culture condensed. They were wide open to new things. It wasn't just the back, the past, history that interested them. They were forward-looking. And because they were forward-looking, they were broad-minded. Now, this was tremendous. For even the Jew, unfortunately, had become backward-looking. Back to the past glories of David, back to the past glories of Moses, back to the past glories of Solomon, all the way back, back. Now they thought, we are, we are in an occupied country, we're a vassal 
state. We're a satellite of another power. They looked back, but here came the liberalizing tendency of Greek thought and culture. And all the Greek-speaking Jews were marked as, a, as opposed to their Hebrew counterparts by this fact that they were forward-looking. So it is a most interesting fact that when we come to the New Testament, as we shall, we find all the great leaders in the forward move of the church were Hellenists. There is only one who stands out who isn't, and that's Saul of Tarsus. He's a Hebrew of the Hebrews, but he speaks Greek. And he was born in Tarsus, and he was a Jew of the dispersion, although belonging to the Hebrews. Isn't that interesting? But Stephen was the first man to begin to see clearly the difference between the new covenant and the old. And he lost his life for it, for preaching that great sermon. He was a Hellenist. Philip. See, they've all got Greek names. No good Jew would have a Greek name. Uh, um, these were Hellenists. You see, they were so forward-looking, their parents gave them Greek names. And so they'd got these many names that somehow all looked forward to the future. And um, this is another great factor of Greek, uh, that the Greek Empire um, created or, 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 or uh, produced uh, in the preparation for the coming of the Messiah. It is a very interesting thing that you will find, if you look into church history, that those with a traditional Hebrew background were the conservatives. James... Peter, even Peter kept on going back, you know. Paul had to stand up and tell him off because he, he wouldn't eat with Gentiles. He suddenly got afraid and ran back uh, over it and so on. But you find that the Hellenists are the people with the forward-looking people. You see, they saw much more clearly than their Hebrew counterparts this glorious new covenant that was theirs and the fact that it was for Gentile, Jew and Gentile. Jew first and then Gentile. Now, that's all very wonderful, isn't it? So these are the two great factors uh, that were contributed by the Greek empire to the coming of Christ. But there's a third and even greater. If it was a cultural unity that was imposed, and if it was uh, this liberalizing tendency of Greek thought and culture, the third thing was, um, and sup the supreme factor that was contributed by the Greek empire was its language. So simple. But you see, the Greek Empire gave its language. And even when the Romans came, Greek continued as the common popular language of uh, most of the Mediterranean. It is an interesting fact. Therefore, when the Lord Jesus came, although he spoke Aramaic, yet the language that was going to carry that gospel to the ends of the earth was this Greek. And you see, there was no need in those days when there was no printing, and when there were no great publishing houses, and when there was no great system for translation. Just imagine what it would have been like if it had been given in Aramaic and then had to be translated into Egyptian and into Libyan and into um, Greek and into Latin and into um, Teutonic, you know, all the other things, that way, things, Saxon, all the rest of them, all the other its and bits and pieces. It would have been a tremendous job. Do you understand? You see, you take it for granted, I take it for granted. We think, oh, what is all this about? Why does he talk about this? It's not really so thrilling. But it is thrilling. 
It's absolutely thrilling. Because, you see, as though if Greek had not been the common language of the popular people, not just the educated classes, but the ordinary people, you see, well, the, the gospel just couldn't have spread. There was no printing. There was no great system of publishing houses. There was no way of, of somehow getting this obscure gospel from someone in Palestine out to the ends of the inhabited earth. But Greek was now the established language of the man in the street right the way across the old Persian Empire and right the way to Rome. So, here we get into Greek. We've already got the Old Testament scriptures in Greek. They've already been translated at least 150 years before Christ. Now we've got the basics. So Matthew starts to sit down and scrawls out his gospel. And then Mark puts it down. Probably Peter dictated it to him and then he wrote out his gospel. And then Dr. Luke sits down and scrawls out his all under divine inspiration. And so these these Gospels begin to go out in Greek, and they're put alongside the Old Testament in Greek. And now they begin to say, here is the great foretelling of the Messiah. Here is the fulfillment. And then Dr. Luke said, I must add another volume. So he writes Acts, and Acts comes next to it. And now we get the story of the ancient church, the early church. And then Paul sits down in white anger. He's heard about people that have gone around, the churches that he brought into being in Galatia, and they're doing all kinds of terrible things to them, unsettling them, and he gets so angry, he storms into his study, sits down, and in white-hot heat, he writes a letter. I would to God that they would cut themselves off, mutilate themselves, he says. So we get the letter to the, of the Galatians, and then a bit later we find there he is with a chain on one arm, on his wrist, and there it drapes and jewels across the room, and there's a soldier on the other end of the chain. And there's the Apostle Paul dictating to someone who's scrawling it all out. Well, it's the letter to the Ephesians, the letter to the Colossians. Later on, we hear him writing his last letters to Timothy. He's on the end of a chain, soon to be executed, soon to be a martyr for the faith. But he's writing in Greek. He's writing in Greek. He's not writing in Hebrew or even Aramaic. He's writing in Greek. And so those letters could go right into Caesar's household. They could go to the highest in the land and the lowest in the land. They could go to the ends of the empire. Everywhere people could understand this aged, poor, old, half-blind apostle. Here they've got this before them. There's John the apostle. He, he writes the book of Revelation, he doesn't, uh, in one sense, write it. Of course he writes it, but I mean, it's uh, by divine inspiration. He sees these visions and he sits down and writes them. He's in a, a kind of forced labor camp on the Isle of Patmos. They're trying to work him to death. That was the way they tried to get rid of political prisoners. That's quite a modern idea, actually. And um, they thought, work him to death on a little bit of food and we'll finish him. But there he sees the most glorious visions looking right down through the centuries of time to us and beyond us to the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. And he writes it, and the Lord will forgive me for saying this, I know, because it's absolutely true, in the most fearful Greek. Now, that's a strange thing. Everyone, everyone agrees on this. Uh, John's Greek in the book of Revelation is fearful. 
But you see, he says, it's no good writing it in Aramaic. I'll write it in Greek. So there he is. He's not too good at Greek, but he's on his way, writing it in Greek in order to get it over to the people, you see. We must get this vision of the coming of the Lord. But you know, the strange thing is, it's been Greek to a lot of people ever since who couldn't understand it. Now, the point is, the point is that John wrote his book of Revelation under symbolic forms, in great, what we call, apocalyptic symbols. Why? Because he knew very well that if he wrote it and boldly stated who he was talking about, he would have lost his head right there and then. So the Lord shows him these great visions and he puts them all down. He writes it in Greek so that everyone can read, but they need the Holy Spirit to understand what he's written. It's as simple as that. But there is the value of the language. Greek. Well, now, we have just a few more moments and we'll deal with the last of the empires, Rome. When we come to Rome, of course, I think most of you are more acquainted with uh, the history and character of the Roman Empire than probably any of the other periods. In 66 BC, the last great world empire rose to its zenith. For some centuries, Rome's sun had been slowly rising, quite a number of centuries, under the leadership of a general called Pompey in the eastern Mediterranean and under the leadership of another military genius in the west, in Gaul, and in these little islands, a man called Julius Caesar, Rome reached its climax and came to supreme power. Pompey was murdered and Julius Caesar took supreme leadership. Now, it is in fact very interesting, all this, because Rome was different to any of the empires that preceded it, Babylon, Persia, and even Greece. And it was different in this, that it had a democratic form of government. Already, it's true, known in what we call the Greek city-states, like Athens and some of the others. They had already from time immemorial known something of this democratic form of government, so-called. It needs qualifying, but it's, this is not the place to, can't go into every little detail. It does need qualifying. But it was a form of democratic government. Certainly, by standards in those days, it was democratic its, its, its um, genius lay in, its, in, in the way it bound territory after territory to itself by bilateral agreements. It didn't just conquer huge areas, say, now you've all got to do what we say, but it took this territory, often by cunning, made an agreement with it, and by a bilateral agreement between the two, and then another bilateral agreement there, another there, and another here, it gradually bound state after state, city after city, area after area, territory after territory, to Rome. All somehow compromised. If they really wanted a living economy, then they had got to keep the peace with Rome. And so Rome gradually brought this, these territories under her wing, giving them, wisely, much local independence, but at the same time holding 
an overall responsibility for, um, for the area or state administratively and militarily. So in other words, Rome had an overall administrative responsibility and an overall military responsibility whilst it let them get on with their own local customs and worship the gods they wanted to worship. And if they wanted to have a festival on this day, they could have it and so on and so on. It allowed that local independence. This was Rome. Now, whilst in theory the government was democratic, in practice it very soon became autocratic, the emperor being looked upon as divine. Now, this was the point of great conflict between the Christian and the Jew and the Roman Empire. At the beginning it wasn't there, but as time went on and more and more the emperor claimed his divinity and demanded that people confess him as God so the Christian could not do it and was martyred. Thousands and thousands of Christians died in the arenas because they would not offer incense to Caesar as God. This happened in the last war in Japan. Just the same way the Japanese emperor is looked upon as God, uh, the son of God. And every person had to offer incense and bow before the photo in every college, in every military academy, on every parade ground. And if a Christian stood erect, he was taken away, judged and executed. It was as simple as that. So there was the terrible choice in the latter years of the Roman Empire. For every Christian, thousands compromised in order to keep their lives. And thousands of others laid down their lives just because they would not confess the, the, the Caesar as God and Lord. Well, there we are. In fact, we have to also to say this, that the emperor became so autocratic, such a dictator in the end, that it was the army and its allegiance to the Caesar that was the factor in the Roman Empire. At its greatest point, at its greatest point, the Roman Empire stretched from the British Isles in the, in the north, from not um, England, we can't include Scotland, they were too much for uh, the Romans, but from um, northern England right the way down to the African desert, to the, the cataracts of the Nile, the Nile cataracts, to the Arabian desert in the south, and from um, uh, the river Euphrates uh, here in the east to Spain in the west, the Atlantic really, in the west, the Roman Empire spread. Only Germany, who also was too much uh, for the Romans, was outside of it uh, in the north. And, of course, the Vikings, who were so primitive uh, that uh, <laughs> the, the, the Romans felt that there was no real point in even, even trying to get them. Um, and in the east, there was the Parthians. Um, they were the only ones that stayed outside of the Roman Empire. Now, when you think of that, it is remarkable. Such a vast area under the control of one government, under the control of one administration, with all those boundaries guarded by one great imperial army, it is absolutely remarkable. It was governed 
The way it was governed was by it being divided into provinces. And these provinces were um, divided into two classes. The first class were responsible to the Roman Senate. Now, if you read your New Testament very carefully, you'll get all these things. They make it thrill you, if you really listen carefully and read your New Testament with this in mind. You see, wherever you hear of a proconsul or a governor mentioned, you know that it's a province of the first class, which is responsible to the Roman Senate. And the governor was appointed, or proconsul was appointed, for one year only. And then he was recalled normally. Sometimes it went on. Uh, but it was, that was the understanding. The other class were what were called imperial provinces. And these were always in more troubled spots, like Spain or Syria and elsewhere, where it was an imperial province and that province was directly responsible to the emperor himself who delegated someone called a legate or a procurator to be in charge. So when you read carefully, if you see in your margin, procurator, you know that is a province that had a lot of rebellion or the, or the emperor was a bit worried about and it was responsible to himself directly. After a while, the emperors were very clever. All the new provinces they made, they made responsible to themselves so that they felt they could control the empire more. So less and less became responsible to the Senate, more and more responsible to the Caesar, or Kaiser, uh, himself. Roman citizenship was something that everyone longed for. It was a tremendous thing. Do you know that at one point, although Rome uh, only numbered 400,000 in, in the beginning um, of the great power of Rome, there were four million registered Roman citizens. Now, this was the way Rome claimed loyalty. She granted citizenship to certain people, knowing full well that once they got this longed-for citizenship, which made them a free citizen of the Roman uh, Commonwealth, then somehow or other, their, their loyalty, they felt, um, was won. Now, you remember Paul got very angry at one point when, when uh, he was being beaten and uh, asked to see the, uh, the guard, the centurion, and he said, you know, I'm a Roman citizen. And this man said, when he took him to the, uh, the governor, the governor said, did you buy it? No, sir, Paul. I was born. I had it by birth. See? Because Paul lived in Tarsus, and Tarsus was one of the cities granted Roman citizenship. Anyone who was born in Tarsus um, of a certain class uh, became a Roman citizen. Now, there were two um, kinds of way in which you could get Roman citizenship uh, in a corporate way. One was if you were in one of the colonies. Now, there were colonies all over this vast area. First, nearer to Rome, and then gradually the Romans colonized the whole of their empire. What they did was this. They had a great surplus of population in Rome. So they moved a whole group of generally ex-soldiers, old war veterans, with their families, and asked them if they would settle in such and such a place. Philippi is a colony. Probably it was settled by a lot of old war veterans. That's how it started. And there were a lot of other places like that all over the Roman Empire that were colonies. Um, they had a special sense of, of loyalty to Rome because they were miniature Romes. They were literally miniature Romes. 
little colonies of Rome built on the same method and system of government. The other way was that Rome in its political interests, granted certain cities Roman citizenship. Athens was one. If you were born in Athens of a certain family, a certain class of people, you immediately became a Roman citizen. And there were many others too like that. Uh, you could buy your Roman citizenship, uh, uh, but it cost you something, quite a big sum of money, to obtain your Roman citizenship by that way. Well, now... <clears throat> by these means, anyway, Rome ensured itself, or sought to ensure itself, against rebellion. Now, Rome gave to the world justice. It gave to the world the rule of law. Now, you've often heard of that concerning the old British Empire, which I'm afraid has vanished. Um, we spoke of it as the rule of law. Every decent, law-abiding citizen understood what the rule of law was. That is, it wasn't a person's personality or whims or fancies, but a man had absolute justice guaranteed to him by law. It was the rule, not of a personality or just of a man's ideas of interpre interpretation, but by the law itself. Now, this is what Rome gave to the world, and it was a new thing. The world knew nothing about justice, and although Roman justice broke down all over the place, nevertheless it did a tremendous thing in giving to the world justice, the rule of law. Um, in many ways, of course, it has become the basis of justice in every civilized country. British law is based more or less on Roman law. And there are many other countries, that's the same. Their law was so remarkable that it has given to the whole of the succeeding centuries their character. It created, Rome, it created an administrative machine from Babylon almost to Scotland unequaled in world history. Whilst its roads its public buildings and works have become world famous. If you've ever seen the aqueduct taking water for miles and miles and miles away, built by Roman engineers, carrying water, 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 all the way to a city. Never heard of before, really. And many other schemes. I was reading only today that Nero had a mad scheme, at least everyone thought it was mad at the time, of cutting a canal, canal right through rock in Greece. The strange thing was, a little later, in the 20th century, it was done, and they followed the exact plan of Nero cut it right through and, and did it. Roman the, uh, building and what was something remarkable. Well, you all know, we all talk about Roman roads. If we see a road that's really straight and we can stand and look at it and we, it goes as straight, just straight, as straight as can be, we say that's a Roman road. But you know that's unheard of in those days. Roads could be laid in that way they laid roads over the whole of their empire and connected end to end with a vast network of what was, relatively speaking, first-class roads. And today, those roads still exist. Most remarkable thing. All these centuries later, those roads they built existed. But this is even more remarkable. In John Wesley's day, he had to pray every day that he be kept from robbers and highwaymen. 
But in the Roman days, they policed their roads so wonderfully that they almost freed the Roman Empire from piracy and brigands. That's a remarkable thing. It's because Roman justice, when it came to the pirate and the brigand, was very rough indeed. But they freed the roads of fear so that people on the whole could travel along them and know that they were safe. Now Rome combined military might and strength with justice and public order. Its system of roads, which we've spoken about, gave to the empire a vast transport system. The Roman army, we just mentioned before we close, was another remarkable institution. It was enormous. And in the Bible, you will meet it again and again. We, do you remember when that man, that poor man, who was possessed, uh, living in the tombs, when he came to the Lord Jesus, uh, the Lord Jesus asked him what his name was, and something from within him said, My name is Legion. Now, Legion was the Roman military term for the biggest unit in the army, and it numbered 10,000 men. Roughly 10,000 men was in a legion. And if we are to believe it, then that, that there were 10,000 evil spirits in that man. That, that's why they, when they were cast out, they went into a herd of swine, numbering many, many hundred, and drove them into the sea. Terrible thought, isn't it? Legion. And then, you know, the Lord Jesus spoke. He said, there's no need to fear about me. If I were to call upon my Father, he could send me legions of angels. Legions of angels. Have you ever thought, I hope you don't think of it as the um, uh, poppy day legion, you know, when you think of it in Scripture. What does legion mean? It means, it means the Lord's thinking of the biggest unit in the army. 10,000 men. Now that legion was divided into 10 cohorts and each of those cohorts was uh, numbered 480 each. Now if you are mathematical, you work that out, you'll think, well how then is a legion 10,000? That was because it had 10 cohorts of infantry, a unit of cavalry, and another large unit of artillery. And that's how it was made up and all the auxiliaries as well, it came to something like 10,000. One of the key men, key officers in the Roman army was the centurion. And he was, just what his name means, a man who commanded 100. Sometimes he commanded more. But it was generally uh, a name for the officer who commanded the 100. Now we meet these men again and again in the New Testament. It was a cohort that went to arrest the Lord Jesus. Fancy sending 480 men to arrest the Lord Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. It was a cohort that guarded the grave. 480 men on the, on the grave guarding it against the day of resurrection. And then still people say his body was stolen. It seems quite remarkable. Um, and then again, there are other things um, that are remarkable. You get the centurion. You get the centurion by the cross who stood there. He was one of the officers in the Roman army. You've got the centurion who went to the Lord Jesus about his servant, which shows a remarkable character in the man. He was bothered about the servant. And he went to the Lord Jesus and my servant is ill. 
could you, don't come, just, just say the word, I know what it means, just say the word, and he'll be healed. And the Lord said the word, and the centurion went back and found that he'd been healed at that moment. And the Lord said, I've not found such great faith, no, not in Israel. Here was a, a Roman centurion. Now, these are, this is all the background. Well, now we must end. What was the contribution of Rome? to the purpose of God. How did the Roman Empire prepare for the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ? Well, it prepared in this way. The world was strongly and harmoniously governed in a way that it had not been governed before. From end to end of its, of it, of its, um, of its boundaries, of its area, there were troubles, yes. There were rebellions. But overall, the strength of Roman government and military might meant there was peace in the Roman Empire when the Lord Jesus was born and at the beginning of the days of the Gospel. Then again, we have to say this. It gave the rule of law. And in giving the rule of law, it gave Christianity its birth because Christianity was protected by Roman law until finally both Jew and Christian were in Nero's day um, an edict was passed that they were illicit religions and from that moment on they were persecuted and, and, and martyred but whilst Roman law gave its authority to the protection of Jew and Christian, because then at that time the Christian was looked upon as a sect of, of Jewry, just like the Pharisees or the Sadducees, um, it was the most wonderful protection. And that's why Paul appealed to Caesar. He felt quite sure that he would be protected more by going before Caesar uh, than by any uh, Judean court uh, in Palestine. Of course, the other thing that Rome gave to um, the coming of the Lord Jesus was its network of roads. Now, that may seem to you very, very strange, but in actual fact, uh, it was the network of roads that Rome produced that meant that that gospel in that Greek language with those Greek, um, both spoken word and written word, could go to the ends of that empire in a very short time before, in fact, the emperors woke up to exterminate. By the time that Nero had decided that they'd got to do something about it, Christianity had spread to the far ends of his empire. It couldn't have done it without those roads. It was the roads that did it. And Paul was a past master in this strategy of evangelism. He went along the great roads, and wherever there was a great strategic centre, he stopped there and preached until a church came into being, and he said, now you look after all the country districts around you, I'm off. And off he went, down the road again, and he came to another place, and they stopped there and evangelized, and then he went on again to the next place. And it was the Roman road that did it. He would have been murdered many a times by brigands. He speaks of it. But you see, on the whole, Roman government policed the roads very wonderfully. And so the gospel could spread from Russia to Spain, from Scotland to Egypt right along this network of roads, through these colonies, right the way along it went, uh, until the gospel reverberated right throughout the Roman Empire.
Now, do you not believe that God is the God of history? And if this is the way he prepared the world for the first advent of our Lord Jesus, do you think that he's asleep tonight? Do you think that he is not preparing this world for the second advent of the Lord Jesus Christ? Behind the scenes, behind the counsels of godless and atheistic men, behind all their ways and methods and ideologies and techniques, God is working his purpose out. And the final, the final word will be God. In fact, in the final thing, the ultimate thing, will be that stone, not cut with hands, will smash into smithereens this whole world system with all its wickedness and with all its cruelty. It will be smashed into smithereens by the stone that will become a rock which fills the whole earth. Who is that rock? None other than the rock of age. The one who Moses, when he said, show me thy glory, the Lord said, stand by me on this rock and I will put thee in the cleft of the rock and I will put my hand upon thee so that thou shalt not see my face but thou shalt see my behind, my backside. Thou shalt see my glory hidden in the cleft of the rock under the hand of God. That's the rock that is going to fill the whole earth whose glory shall cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. Shall we pray? Now Lord Jesus, thou who was, whose coming was so gloriously prepared by the Spirit of God, we pray that in our days Thou wilt give us eyes to see and to understand, Lord, that in our day and in our generation Thou art at work in the affairs of men, working out Thine own purpose, so that our Lord Jesus, when He comes, shall come back to take His people to be with Himself. Lord, we thank thee for this glorious hope. We thank thee, Lord Jesus, that thou art that stone not made with hands. Thou art the rock, the cleft rock, in which we have found our salvation and are hidden in the presence of the glory of God. We thank thee and we worship thee together in his name. Amen. Amen.